0: Chapter 40 of The Grey Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremiah Sutherland, Victoria, British Columbia. The Grey Man by S.R. Crockett. Chapter 40. The Cave of Death. For a moment there in the darkness I stood dazed, and my head swam, for I bethought me of the earl's words, as well as of the words of the minister of Edinburgh, and I knew that my fate stood upon tiptoe. For here in the finding of this box lay all my life, and it might be my love also. But again another thought crossed the first, damming back and freezing the current of hot blood which surged to my heart. The caird's words in the greaves' kitchen also came back to me. You will find the treasure of Kelwood, in the cave of Sonny Bean, in the head of Beninbrack over against Benarard. If this were so, there was little doubt but that we stood in the most instant and imminent danger of our lives. Yet I could not bring myself to leave the treasure. Doubtless I ought to have done so, and hastened our escape for the sake of the girls, Nell and Marjorie. But I thought it might be possible to convey the chest out, and so bring both our quests to an end at once. That for treasure, by the recovery of the box which had been lost and found, and then lost again upon the red moss and that of vengeance by the certain condemnation of the Auchendrains upon Marjorie's evidence. The next moment mighty fear took hold on me. All that I had heard since my childhood about the unknown being who dwelled upon the shore-side of Benane, and lived no man knew how, ran through my mind. His monstrous form, his cloven feet that made steads on the ground like those of a beast, his huge hairy arms, clawed at the finger-ends like the toes of a bear, I minded me of the fireside tales of travellers who had lost their way in that fastness, and who, falling into the power of his savage tribe, returned no more to kindlier places. I minded also how none might speak to the prowler by night, nor get an answer from him, how every expedition against him had come to naught, because that he was protected by a power stronger than himself, warned and advised by intelligence higher than his own. Besides, none had been able to find the abode, nor yet to enter into the secret defences where lurked the man-beast of Benerard. And it was in this abode of death that I, Launce Kennedy being, as I supposed in my sane mind, had taken refuge with two women, one the dearest to me on earth. Their blood ran pingling and pricking in my veins at the thought. My heart-cords tightened as though it too had been shut in a box and the key turned. Hastily I slipped down, and upon a pretext took the dominie aside to tell him what it was that I had found. Ye have found our dead warrant, then. I wish we had never seen your treasures and brass-banded boxes, said he roughly, as if I had done it with intent. And in troth I began to think he was right. But it was none of my fault, and, so far as I could see, we had been just as badly off in that place if I had not found it at all. After that I went ranging hither and thither among all the passages and twinings of the cave, yet never daring to go very far from the place where we were, lest I should not be able to find my way back. For it was an ill, murderous, uncanny abode, where every step that I took something strange swept across my face, or slithered clamily along my cheek, making me grew to my very bone marrows. I am as fond of a nimble fetch of adventures as any man as every believing reader of this chronicle kens well by this time, but I want no more such darkling experiences, especially now that I am become a peaceable man, and no longer so regardlessly forward as I once was in thrusting myself into all stirs and quarrels up to the elbows. Then in a little while I went soft-footed to where Marjorie and Nell had bestowed themselves. When I told them how we had run into danger with a folly and senselessness that nothing could have excused save the great necessity into which by the hellish fury of our enemies we had been driven, it was indeed cheerful to hear their words of trust and their declarations that they could abide the issue with fortitude. So a little heartened we made such preparations as we could, as preparing our pistols and loosening our swords, yet all had to be done by touch in that abode of darkness and black unchristian deeds. It was silent and eerie beyond telling in the cave. We heard the water lapping further and further from us as it retreated down the long passage. Now and then we seemed to catch a glyph of the noise of human voices. But again when we listened it seemed naught but the wind blowing every way through the passages and halls of the cave, or the echoed wing beatings of the uncanny things that battened in the roofs and crevices of this murderous cavern, unfathomed, unsounded, and obscure. But we had not long to wait ere our courage and resolution were tested to the uttermost. For presently there came to us, clearly enough, though faintly at first, the crying and baying of voices fearful and threatening. Indeed they sounded more like the insensate howling of dogs or shut-up hungry hounds in a kennel than kindly human creatures. Then there was empty silence, through which the noise came in gusts, like the sudden deadly anger of a mob. Again it came, more sharp and double-edged with fear like the wailing of women led to unpitied doom. And the sound of this inhuman carnival approaching filled the cave with shuddering. This direful crying came nearer and nearer, till we all cowered pale-faced together, save Marjorie alone, who having been as it were in Hell itself, feared not the most merciless fiends that might have broken loose therefrom. She stood a little apart from us, so far that I had not known her presence but for the draught of air that blew inward which carried her light robe towards me, so that its texture touched my face, and I was aware of the old subtle fragrance, which in happy days had well-nigh turned my head in the gardens of Culzean. But Nell Kennedy stood close to me, so close that I could hear her heart beating and the little nervous sound of the clasping and the unclasping of her hands, which thing made me somewhat braver, especially when she put both her palms about my arm and gripped it convulsively to her as the noises of the crying and howling waxed louder and nearer. I am vexed that I flouted you, Launce," she whispered in my ear. I do not care a docken what you said to Kate Allison. After all, she is not such a truth-telling girl, nor yet by ordinary Bonnie. I whispered to her that I cared not either, but that I was content to die for her. Oh, but you might have lived for me, she moaned, if I had not led you into all this trouble. Nay, Nell, my dear, said I hastily, speak not so. You have ever been our saviour, and our best fortune hitherto and so shall be yet. Then mock us not, in the darkness of the cave we kissed each other once or twice, amorously and willingly, and the savour of it was passing sweet even when we looked for naught but death. Give me a dagger, Nell said to me, and I gave mine own to her, which she put away in her bosom, as I judged, and again took my hand. Then the horrid brabblement filled all the cave, and sounded louder and more outrageous being heard in darkness. Suddenly, however, the murky gloom was shot through with beams of light, and a rout of savages, wild and bloody, filled the wide cave beneath us. Some of them carried rude torches, and others had various sorts of back burdens, which they cast down in the corners. I gat a glyph of one of these, and though in battle I had often seen things grim and butcherly, my heart now sprang to my mouth, so that I had well nigh fainted with loathing. But I commanded myself, and thrust me before Nell, who, from where she sat, could only see the flickering scarrow of the torches upon the roof and walls, for the place seemed now, after the former darkness of Egypt, fairly bursting with light. Then I knew that these execrable hell-hounds must be the hideous crew who called Sonny Bean lord and master. They were of both sexes and all ages, mostly running naked, the more stalwart of them armed with knives and wingers, or with knotted pieces of tree in which a ragged stone had been thrust and tied with sinew or tags of rope. The very tottering children were striking at one another, or biting like young wolves till the blood flowed. In the corner sat an old, bleared hag, who seemed of some authority over them, for she pointed with her finger, and the uproar calmed itself a little. The shameless naked women crew began to bestir themselves and heaped broken driftwood upon the floor, to which presently a light was set. Then the red-climbing flame went upward. The wood smoke filled the cave, acrid and tickling which, getting into our throats, might have worked us infinite danger, had it not been that the clamour of the savages was so great that it never stilled for a moment. But in time we became accustomed to the reek, and it disturbed us not. More by luck than good guiding, the place where we sat was, as I have said, favourably situate for seeing without being seen, being a kind of natural balcony or chamber in the wall, like a swallow's nest plastered under the eaves of a barn. We learned afterwards that it was a place forbidden by Sonny Bean, the head of the clan, and so kept sacred for himself when it should please him to retire thither for his ease and pleasure with whomsoever he would of his unholy crew. And to this no doubt we owed our safety, for the young impish boys roamed everywhere else, specially swarming and yelling about our boat, which they had just discovered. I noted also that when any of these came in the way of the men, he was knocked down incontinent with a hand, a knife, or a stick, as was most convenient. Sometimes the lad would lie a minute or two where he had been struck, then up again, and to the playing and disport he fell, as though nothing had happened. All this was horrid enough, but that was not the worst of it, and I own that I hesitate to write that which I saw. Yet for the sake of the truth, tell I must and will. The cavern was very high in the midst, but at the sides not so high, rather like the sloping roof of an attic, which slants quickly down from the roof tree. But that which took my eye amid the smoke were certain vague shapes, as it had been of the limbs of human beings, shrunk and blackened, which hung in rows on either side of the cave. At first it seemed that my eyes must certainly deceive me, for the reek drifted hither and thither and made the room flow from them with its bitterness. But after a little study of these wall adornments, I could make nothing else of it, than that these poor relics, which hung in rows from the roof of the cave, like hams and black puddings set to dry in the smoke, were indeed no other than the parched arms and legs of men and women who had once walked the upper earth, but who by misfortune had fallen into the power of this hideous, inconceivable gang of monstrous man-eaters. Then the true interpretation of all the tales that went floating about the countryside, in which I had hitherto deemed wholly vain and fantastical, burst upon me but there was that nearer to me which smote me down like a blow taking a man at other wares. As I stood up to look, gripping nervously at my sword and peering over, there came a gust off the sea, roaring up the passages of the cavern, for with the moon the wind had risen without. The fire on the floor flickered upward and filled the place with light. I felt something touch my cheek. Speedily I turned, and lo, it was a little babe's hand that swung by a cord. The wind had caught it, so light it was, and it had rubbed my cheek. By the Lord it was enough and more than enough. I sank down and the spirit within me became water because of that soft sliding little hand. Had the naked devils come on to me then, I declare I had not found power to lift my hand against them, nor so much as to set a finger to the latch of a pistol. But in a little while I was strengthened, for now, as though I had never seen her before, I saw the true face of the brave lass Nell Kennedy and it is passing sweet, even in the presence of death, to see the eyes of the beloved for the first time after declared an unashamed love has come into them. She never took her sad, steadfast regard from my face, and as I say, I was infinitely strengthened thereby. I could also mark Marjorie Kennedy, and since she stood erect, I knew that she had seen all the blasting horrors I had witnessed, except perhaps the babe's hand a-swing by its cord. Yet there was no blanching of her face, Rather she stood and eyed the scene with a calm and assured countenance, like to a stake-kissing martyr ere the flames are lit. If ever any soul had cast out fear it was that of Marjorie Kennedy, for unfathomed hate can do that as well as perfect love, and especially in a woman. But when my eyes fell on Dominey Muir, I got a yet greater start. The little, thick-set man, who had been my brave companion through such a multitude of dangers, seemed to be transformed. A still and biting fury sat inexorably on his lips. He gripped his blade as if he would spring straight over the wall of rock upon the bestial crew. So afraid was I to look upon him and read his intent in his burning eyes, that I undid for a moment the clasp of Nell's hand upon my shoulder and crawled to him. "'Have a care what you do, Dominie,' I whispered in his ear. "'Remember, it is of the women we have to think.' For as clearly as if I had read it in print, I saw his desire and his determination. He thought of young Mary Torrance, the last that had been spirited away, and the red stain on the grass, and the ghastly garniture about the walls of the monster's cave, had revealed to him the conclusion of the untold tale. But my words stopped him dead, like a bullet in the heart of a springing wildcat on the bow. He looked just once at me, and his eyes had the same wild glare. But there came that into them which told me of a thought greater than the stark revenge on which he had been all intent but a few moments before. I bent still nearer to his ear. Dominey said I, if they come at us, mind that we are not to leave the lasses alive to fall into their bloody hands. He looked at me with a haggard face and shook his head. I cannot do it, he said, and set his hands over his eyes to hide the torch's flare. When he looked up again I pointed to the loath things that decked the walls and the eaves of the cave, and to the pickle barrels that stood in the corners. The Dominey understood and nodded. Surely you can, if I can, I whispered to him. I will take care of Nell, my love, if you..." And I looked at Marjorie so that he understood fully. Then came my eyes back to Nell. They felt hot and dry, for I was taken with the reek in them, and my heart rose within me to think that in a swift tale of moments I might have to take away the sweet life of my own heart's love. But when I went back to her there was a new light of understanding in the face on which the flicker of the fire was reflected from the roof. I knew that she had seen and understood the import of my colloquy with the Domini, and are looking from the one to the other of them. Yet the fear had strangely gone from her face. I declare she looked almost glad. She set her lips to my ear. "'Lance,' she whispered, "'I want none but you to do it. If so be that it comes to that. You will, will you not, Lance?' Then I knew that she had understood all the love she had seen in my face for indeed I would rather have killed my sweetheart a hundred times than let her fall alive into the hands of such a ghastly bestial devil's crew. So Nell Kennedy, trusting me with the manner of her death as though it had been a little love tryst between ourselves, sat looking up at me with such eyes of love and trust that they went nigh to make me forget that Cimmerian den and the ghoulish beasts that rioted in it. End of chapter 40